Hello. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. We hope that you will be encouraged and it builds your faith. Thanks for listening. You know, in 2003, there was a 27-year-old young lady, young woman by the name of Tara Fall. And uh, she had undergone brain surgery because she was having seizures. And uh, doctors had decided that they needed to go in and uh, do surgery, hoping that they could keep the seizures from happening. But what happened was, while she was in surgery, she had a stroke in the middle of that surgery. And uh, they didn't know until she woke up of what kind of recovery or what kind of effects that the stroke had had on her. And, uh, but what happened was is that it left a very unusual effect on her life. Uh, and she de- developed and, um, and it damaged a part of her brain that allows you to recognize the face of others. Very interesting. And uh, it's, what she developed was is what's called face blindness. It's very rare. It's only happened to a few folks. There is a technical term for it. It's called prosagpregnanitius. Yeah. Y'all like my doctoral uh, explanation there, and I'm sure I said it wrong, so it doesn't matter. I just tried to give it to you. And uh, when she woke up, she didn't recognize anybody. And as time went on, it didn't get much better. And uh, after 16 years, she's gotten a little better, better because she's worked with medical science, and they've... Uh, helped her develop certain ways. Uh, Now, she didn't lose her memory, but she lost her ability to recognize faces. And so she remembered she had children. She remembered that she had life. She just didn't recognize the faces that would come before her. She described it like this. She said she would take her children to to, uh, rehearsal practice or to uh, whatever, concert. And after they would finish and they would come out, It was so bad, she would not recognize who they were. And so she had to be told this was her children. And uh, it was so bad that when she looked into the mirror, she could look into the mirror and turn away and then come back to the mirror and say, who is that? And that was how difficult that was for her. And so uh, she, she developed this. And what happened was, because she could not make identification of herself or anyone else, um, you know, she lost the sense of what it was to recognize and be able to identify uh, people as well as even, even identify herself. In essence, she had lost her identity, lost her ability to identify. She had come to the place to where... Those that she loved in her life, she could not recognize. Now, think about that for a moment. Think if you saw your loved ones and was not able to recognize who your children was, to recognize yourself, to recognize those around you. As sad as that would be, and as sad as, and tragic as that is, uh, it's even sadder when the church loses its identity. When the church has lost its ability to recognize itself, and I can tell you that I believe somewhat in the Western world, most churches have lost their sense of identity. They've lost the ability to identify what is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. To be able to identify who is his church, who's a part of his church. I want to take you to the book of Matthew chapter 5. We're going to go to a couple passages of scripture this morning. And uh, here in Matthew chapter 5, it is interesting because here Jesus gives us the identity of the church. He begins to give us what the identity of the church is, what it should be. And he starts in the book of Matthew. I told you last week that as the multitude came, Jesus went up on a hill and began and drew his disciples close to him and began to teach them as the multitude was around them. Jesus began to teach and he began to list what we know as in scripture as the Beatitudes. He starts by talking about the characteristic of a Christian, the characteristic of a disciple, and the characteristic of a believer. We go through these first verses uh, of 
verse 3 through 10, and he begins to tell us uh, how, uh, what is the characteristic of a Christian. And he begins to list these things that are part of the characteristic of an individual believer. He talks about being poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, or the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those that are merciful. And you can read through there, and it's a great study. I don't have time to go through what all these are. Pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He comes to verse 11, and so what you have here is that uh, what you have here is that he gives us a picture of the Christian individually. How we are to, what is the characteristic of the believer uh, and the characteristics of someone who is a Christian? He gives us a list here of what should be a part of our life. That these beatitudes are something that should flow out of our Christian life. It should be the individual side of who we are as believers. And so you say believers, well, how do you become a believer? Well, the Apostle Paul is very clear in the New Testament that we all have sinned. Is that right? We all have sinned. We've all fallen short of the things of God, the glory of God. And because of that, the wage of sin is death, right? The wages of sin are death. We know we all have a sin nature. We all were born with a sin nature. Each one of us, nobody was special. You didn't get the non-sin gene. We are all of our parent Adam, and we all have become part, and, and, and spiritual death is, is ours, is a part of uh, uh, each of us, and, and so somebody had to come to redeem us spiritually. So the Bible said that Jesus died on the cross, shed his blood, that you and I may know Christ. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, you know, how do I deal with my spiritual lostness? How do I deal with my sin nature? Well, the Bible tells us this, that if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Christ, and believe that Christ risen from the dead, and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, the Bible says you shall be saved, born again, washed in the blood. How many are thankful that you're born again this morning? How many are thankful that Jesus saves this morning? He's not a respecter of person. It says if we confess with our mouth unto salvation and believe unto our heart. And so it, it's, it's what a Christian looks like. It's, Matthew 5 is what a Christian should look like. And uh, a matter of fact, in the New Testament, there are two places where uh, we are called Christians. Christians refer to the word, and the meaning really means little Christ, is what it means. It means little Christ. How I many know we're to spend our Christian life trying to be Christ-like? But he starts here in Matthew 5, and he gives us these characteristics of those that follow him in verses 3 through 12. And then we get to verse 11, it said, blessed are they who revile and persecute you, and they say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who had come before you. In other words, what is, what is uh, Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that there's coming a day when there's going to be the persecution of those who follow Christ. There's going to be a day when you're reviled for what you believe. There's going to be a day when the challenge of being a Christian will no longer be popular, but it'll be an offense and a stumbling block to a world that is lost. Jesus said, don't be dismayed, because your reward is not on this earth, it's in heaven. And he's telling us here, he's saying, listen, so also did they persecute the prophets who came before you. In other words, you're not the first group of people that's had to face being a Christian and having persecution for that. And so as a pastor, and as a church, we should always be preparing people uh, for the day when there shall be those who come against their Christian walk and against their Christian faith. And so you have this 
identity, this Christian identity individually. But something happens in verse 13. This thing shifts, and all of a sudden, he goes from sharing with us what our Christian identity is individually in the first 11 and 12 verses to verse 13. Now he begins to talk about what our corporate responsibility is as Christians. This is who we are to be corporately as a church, as a body, as a family, as a church family. This should be our mission. This is what we should be like. And he says there in verse 13, he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it season? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled on underfoot by men. You are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill and cannot be hid. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. Y'all remember the Sunday school? Right? Y'all remember the song? Don't sing it. Put it under a bushel? No. But a lamp stand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify the Father that is in you. In other words, corporately, we're to be salt and light to the world. Corporately, we're to be salt and light. And when we're salt and light to the world, the Bible says, they shall glorify your Father... They shall glorify your Father which is in heaven. In other words, what's that mean? It means that they recognize that what you are corporately is not you, but it's God who has allowed you to be the salt and light of the earth. That everything that is done through you is done through God. And only God could have done that. Only God could have transformed you. Only God could have given you the life that he's given you. Listen, it's a testimony to the world when God touches somebody that everybody has discounted and changes their light, and all of a sudden they get involved in the body of Christ, and God uses them in a powerful way. They become salt and light to the world, and the world sits back and says, man, only God could have done that. Do I got, a, do I got anybody in here that's part of that crowd that says only God could have done in me what God has done? I know you think it's you, but it's not you. It's Christ in you, which is the hope of glory. It's Christ in you. Only Jesus could have changed you. Only Jesus, listen, you can't change people. Stop trying to control everybody's life. Stop giving advice. Stop trying to tell everybody that this is what you have to do. Listen, it has to come from people who submit themselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And when they do, when they do, he has the power to change their life. And when he changes them, the world will take note and say, only God could have done that in their life. Yeah. Woo, come on. How many's known somebody that only God could have did that work in them? And so the church, but the sad thing is that the church can lose its identity. It can lose its identity and doesn't realize that it's even lost it. Like Tara Fall, we can, we can turn back into the mirror and not even recognize ourselves as the church. And when the church loses its identity, it's not just the community that suffers, it's the church as a whole that suffers. Right? When the church loses its purpose then it's the whole church as a whole that suffers. Now I'm going somewhere. You think, where are you going with all this? Let me tell you what happens when we lose our identity. We lose direction. We lose a sense of mission. We lose a sense of God's intention for this church. We lose direction. We lose sense of mission. We don't have any direction if we don't have if, if, if we don't know who we are in Christ, if we don't know what we're doing, if we don't know what our mission is, we lose direction. If we don't know what our mission is, what we're here to do, what we're called to do, what we should be doing, we lose our mission. Not only do we lose our mission, but we lose God's intention for this church. You know, there's a lot of churches that God has great plans for, but they're not interested in God using them. I don't want to be a church that says, God, we're going to do it our way. 
We're not interested in the way you want to do it. We're going to be who we want to be like we want to be. And God says, that's fine. I'll take my hands off of it. But I don't want to die and stand before God and have to give an account that we weren't what God wanted us to be. That we got to find our identity, find who we are in Christ, find what God has called us to be. In other words, let me turn it a positive way. When we grasp who we are in Christ, we have direction. We have mission. And we're everything that God has intended us to be. We have identity. We know who we are in Christ. And I want to tell you that I prophesied that in 2020, this church will live on mission. And live on mission. Because our mission is to reach all. Our mission is to teach the disciple. To send the called. You know what that means? You know what that encompasses? That encompasses every generation being touched by this church. I'm glad five of you are on board. Remember, Jesus only needs a remnant. He only needed 12. A generation living on mission. That our identity is that we are a church with generations living on mission. There... Can I say this? Here should be a place for everybody. (laughs) This should be a place for everybody. This should be a place for children. It should be a place for young adults. It should be a place for youth. It should be a place for young marriage. It should be a place for young adults. It should be a place for seniors. It should be a place, right? This should be a generational church living on mission. When you lose your identity, then you become a label. (laughs) When you don't have identity, you're a label. In other words, you're what people label you to be. And I know many people who live under a label. Somebody's labeled you dumb or stupid or somebody's labeled you this way or labeled you that way. But it's really not who Christ wants you to be. But if you'll believe the label, you'll begin to live out what the label says you are. But I'm here to tell you that God doesn't want you to live by a label. He wants you to have an identity in Christ Jesus in him and not let somebody else define who you are. You become what Christ wants you to be. Woo! Preaching myself happy this morning. Don't know if y'all with me or not. Not just a label, but an identity. You know why? Because a label holds you back. A label puts restriction on who you are. A label tells you that that you have no room for change. Come on, y'all. How many times have I heard self-righteous Christians? I'm I'm going to come at you a little bit. Stir it up a little bit. How many self-righteous Christians have never left room for people who just get saved to grow? Well, he's a thief. But he came to Jesus. I don't know. We should have him in our church. He, he's, stolen, he's stolen from everybody in town. Well, maybe so. Maybe so. But that doesn't mean that Christ can't change him. And why, do you, why are you putting a label on him when God removed the label when he gave his life to Jesus? <laughs> huh? Well, that boy comes from a bad family. Well, you know what? He may be the guy that transforms his family. Did you ever think of that? He may be the key that God uses to transform his whole family. And you know what? When we get to heaven, his family may have more rewards than your family. We always want to label somebody. Always want to put somebody in a box. Always want to define somebody and draw, draw a ring around them. Well, he's always been a drug addict. His family's always been a drug addict. Well, maybe so. Mary Martha, Martha was a prostitute. Or Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. But Jesus made her a daughter of the king. She was the first one who got to the tomb to see the resurrected Christ. Right? So to live on mission. See, I don't want to be just known as the homeschool church, the old people church, the hippie church, the church that has tattoos, 
the money church, right? The holy rolling church, right? I want to be all of it, all of it. We love hippies, right? We love hippies. <laughs> we love homeschool families. Y'all help me. We love old people. We love people with tattoos. And we sure love people with money. Praise God. <laughs> but finding our identity, who has Christ called us to be? What has he called us to be? And last Sunday we talked about, last week I talked, gave you a mission statement for 2020 of living on mission, that we would reach all, that we teach the disciples, that we would send a call, that when Mr. and Mrs. River Valley would come through those doors, that we wanted to produce certain things in their life so that they could be a part of this church and that we could grow and shut the revolving door of people coming and leaving. Now that's just not our church. I've talked to several pastors who had had, I talked to a pastor this weekend that he had 400, over 400 visitors to his church and 10 of them out of the year had become committed Christians. He said, I have no idea where the other 390 or so plus are or where they went. But he took 10 and, and, and made them into, but that's just not our church. It's, it's a prevailing thing. It's the spirit that is in this day. People don't want to commit. But I told you that living on mission begins by, by building committed Christians to God. And I gave you five core values to do that. We'll talk about them. I talked about people who are competent believers, who are disciples, who want to make a difference but be true disciples. In other words, can God teach you? Can he mold you? Can he change you? And I told you that there are five measures to measure the, your competency in Christ. And we'll talk about those later, but not right now. Then number three, those who are productive are creative. We want to produce those who are creative and productive. You know, what does that mean? In other words, every one of you God has placed in this world someplace for you to impact your world. I can't go to work with you in the morning. I can't go to the grocery store for you, for all, all of y'all. Could you see me fulfilling all y'all's responsibilities? But God wants to take you where you are and use you where you are. The platform you have, God has given you. Use that platform, no matter what it is, in order to build people, share Jesus with them, change the world that you live in, and make a difference and live on mission. And that's what we want to do. How do we live on mission? How do we do that? How do we reach all? I mean, we produce committed people. We produce competent people. We produce creative people. That we, we, we come to that place to where we, 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 we produce this in the Christians. We make these. In other words, that's your individual responsibility. Your individual responsibility is to find yourself in a place where you become committed, where you become competent and productive. That's you individually. That's what, Matt, that's what Jesus was saying here in Matthew. He began to release what the responsibilities were in, 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 as individuals. They are, they, they, they're to mourn. They're to mourn properly. They're to, to have, be merciful. They're to be peacemakers. They're to respond right to persecution. They'll be poor in spirit. They're to be humble. This is your individual life. But then he says, now you are salt and light, and this is your corporate life. And I, and I put a thing up on the screen last Sunday night, and I said, this is what we ask you to do. In 2020, this is what we ask you as believers to do. This is what we've asked you to step into as believers, that you would make a commitment to do these four things, and, and I'll go through them quickly. In other words, one, that you would worship weekly, that you would find and come and worship weekly. Number two, that you would discover RVCC. And you say, well, what does that mean? That means that you would find and discover what your talent is, what your gift is, and develop it to be used for the ministry. Discover RVC means that you'll, you'll come and fellowship with one another, get to know one another, begin to love on one another. Find a prayer partner, find someone to share and do life with, a group to do life with. Three, to connect weekly. 
whether that be through a life group, whether that be through Bible study. I have a Bible study. We have a mommy's group. We have prime timers that meet once, uh, once a month. We have a men's and women's ministry that's starting to kick off. We've got so much more that we want to do. And we're asking that you would connect and then serve in ministry somewhere. I am asking every member of this church that once a month you serve somewhere in ministry. Not going to a ministry, but serving somewhere in ministry. That's living on minute. In other words, get up off of the cushy-tushy that the Lord has blessed you with and do something for the kingdom of God so that we can live on mission in 2020 and we're not just a church with a label, but a church that has a mission and an identity in Christ. I mean, there's many ways. I mean, you can greet, you can usher. There's a parking lot that needs attended to. There's follow-ups. There's people that need visits. There's people that need followed up with. There's missions. There's home mission. There's evangelism. Should I go on? There's people to be visited. Bake a pie. Bake some cookies. Even if nobody likes your cooking, bake something. And even if you give it to somebody you don't like, but do something for the kingdom once a month. Right? Ministry. Be in ministry. We're stepping into living on mission. And when you live on mission, you begin to live on mission. That becomes you begin to walk daily with God. You begin to walk with him daily and begin to make an impact in our community. And what's happened is, and it's my fault, I've allowed us to come to this stale place where though we have pockets of ministry, we are not living with a mission. I want you to wake up every day, every day, with the joy of the Lord and say, I am on mission today. Can't wait to get to work. Because my boss is crazy, but today he might find Jesus. Huh? I can't wait to get to where God has put me. I can't wait to talk to my family. I can't wait to do this. I can't wait. For joy and I, or for whatever evangelism we do. Because I'm going to live on mission. And I'm going to serve, and I'm going to live on mission. I'm not talking about a bucket list. This is what I want to do before I die. Well, no, the kingdom of God doesn't have a bucket list. The kingdom of God has people that wake up every day that are living on mission. You say, well, where'd you get that, Pastor? Where'd you get all that? Like, did you just, like, it's in the Bible. Put those five, put those five things up. Put them all up together if you can. I don't know if you put them in that way, but if you could put them all up together. Listen, living on mission. Living on mission. How, how do we become committed how do we become committed? We, we talk about there are five, five things that we talk about that allows us to walk in being committed. But I want to show you something. I want to show you these in the Word of God. They didn't just didn't come out of, of, turn to Acts chapter 2 while you're going there. George Eliot, the English novelist, poet, and you know, journalist, who really was Mary Evans. And uh, she actually wrote, she was a leading writer in the Victorian age in Great Britain, she actually wrote uh, a, as a pseudonym uh, as George Eliot. But she said, wrote something that's very profound. I want to share it with you this morning because it spoke to my heart. And, and, she, and she wrote this very powerful. She said, what makes life dreary is the absence of motive. What makes life complicated is the multiplicity of motive. What makes life victorious is the singleness of motive. I want to read that again because I want you to get it. What makes life dreary is the absence of motive. What makes life complicated is the multiplicity of motive. What makes life victorious is the singleness of motive. And I thought about that. That's very powerful. How would you transition that to living on mission? I just changed the wording a little bit and said it like this. I said, what makes, 
What makes Christian life dreary and boring? The absence of mission will make the Christian life boring. What makes the Christian life complicated and confusing? When we incorporate the world's standards into the church's mission. You know why we're so confused in the body of Christ? It's because we've taken everything out there and brought it in here. Because, because we want to appease the heathens that come and not interested in transforming or changing, but we want them to come to church because we want them to be in the seat. Well, it's one thing to get them into the seat, sweetheart, but if they're not getting saved and getting converted, then what you've done is, is that you have confused the mission. I ain't getting no help this morning. I know my online folks are shouting. I hear my mama. Right? Listen, we can confuse the church by having a confused mission. By not having a mission that's completely identified in who we are and what we should be. Number three, what makes the Christian life victorious? Singleness of focus of Christ and Him crucified. You hear what I'm saying? The Christian life becomes focused when we are, when we are focused on Christ. When He is the source of our mission. And so I want to show you this in Acts chapter 2 and verse Beginning in verse 36, I want to show you a couple of things this morning. The five values that produce the, co the, the, the committed person, the committed believer. Now, we know here in Acts chapter 2 is the birth of the church. Matter of fact, the birth of the church, most scholars believe that Peter was standing on what was called the southern steps of Israel that led up to Herod's temple. That when the day of Pentecost had come and the Spirit of God fell on believers, that at the morning prayers, that they gathered here on these southern steps of the temple, and it was here that Peter preached this great message. Right there is the picture of it. It's still there. It's over 400 feet long, and it would lead all the way up to Herod's temple. And it was there where rabbis would bring and teach, and they would sit on the steps, and it's where men would be disciples. They believe this is where Peter gave that great message to the church on the day of Pentecost. Jesus himself walked up those steps. Jesus himself probably taught on those steps and taught his disciples on those steps. As I said, rabbis would teach there, and Peter's sermon, when he began to preach in that morning prayer, there, there, there was just this captive audience that was already there because it was already uh, the feast of, of first fruits, and it was already the feast of harvest. And so there were many that was gathered there on those steps, and Peter actually mentions, he mentions several things in the midst of a sermon. Neil Armstrong visited that place one time, and he became so excited when he got there, knowing that this was the place where Jesus had sat, where Peter had preached his message. He bowed down and began to kiss those steps and, and became overwhelmed and, and crying and saying that this is the place the church was born. He said, I may have stepped on the moon, but this is where Jesus stepped. The greatest leap that was ever made was not mankind on the moon, but the greatest leap that man ever made was when the day that Jesus walked these steps up to the temple. Now on the Jewish calendar, they had gathered there in that place in chapter 2, and, and they had Jesus was crucified on Passover. And on Passover, when he was crucified, that, that afternoon they would slay a lamb for the uh, 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 Afternoon offering at 3 o'clock, the very same time that Jesus passed. Jesus was raised from the dead on what was called the day of first fruits. And what would happen on the day of first fruits at the temple, what they would do was, is they would bring a portion of the beginning of their harvest. In other words, the harvest was not yet in full and had not yet come, but the first fruits of their harvest. So if they had an apple orchard, they would go and they would grab a few apples that had already bloomed. They would gather them, bring them to the temple as an offering of first fruits. Why did they do that? Well, they did that as an offering of first fruits uh, because they, they were what they were saying is, God, we're going to give you our first so that we know that the harvest that comes, we can trust you that the harvest will be blessed. 
And so they would give their first fruits. Then comes the day of Pentecost, 50 days later. The Feast of Weeks and the celebration, the harvest has now come in. And they're now celebrating the harvest. And they're all gathering at the temple and they're bringing a tenth of their harvest in. And they would take part of the wheat. And what they would do is they would make leavened bread and give it to the priest. And the priest would walk into the temple before the Holy of Holies. There would be two of them, two loaves of bread. They would take that bread and they would do what was called a wave offering. And that wave offering would be before the curtain. And the priest would go up and down and across like this. Little did they know what they were doing. Up and down. You say, why, why two loaves? One represented the Jews. The other represented the Gentiles. It represented a harvest that was to come. Y'all with me? Stay with me. And they brought those loaves of bread in. They brought as a prophetic, as a prophetic act. They would do that. While they were doing that, Peter is out on the stoop, out on the southern steps, preaching the gospel, and 3,000 people are coming to Jesus. They're in the temple doing the wave offering like this with the harvest as a picture of God bring the harvest, redeem the Jew, redeem the Gentile. Peter's preaching, and 3,000 come to Jesus outside while the priests are worshiping inside. God help us. And so he begins to preach. And in the middle of his sermon, we come to verse 36. This is where living on mission comes in. This is where I got these five things. And so we come and we see here in verse 36, the Bible tells us, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. I want to tell you, this wasn't the same man just 50 days ago, that was running away from the things of God. This guy was transformed. This guy had an identity. This guy was transformed. In a short time, God got a hold of him. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to their heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and, bre men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? <laughs> and what did Peter say? Peter said, repent, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. 3,000 came to Christ that day. And then you wonder, now listen, so how did they there on those steps in that area baptize 3,000 people? Glad you asked. What would happen is when you got to the top of those steps and you began to enter into the temple court, what would happen was they had to wash their feet from the journey. They would wash their feet in these bath pools. They were over, they found over 50, but they believed there were, there were up to 500 of them around the temple mountains. And they would take their sandals off and they would wash their feet as a ceremonial cleansing before they could go up to the temple to offer sacrifice. Well, while they're going up to offer sacrifice, 3,000 people get saved. They drag those 3,000 people to these bathhouses and begin to baptize them. Now, can you imagine that scene? That is a church living on mission. Peter is giving the gospel, shooting the gospel gun. Now, if that was it, if that was it, as glorious as it was, that would be as wonderful as could be. But that's not what ended it, right? This is where the church misses its mission because we think it's just about getting people saved. It's not just getting people saved. It's getting people free. What good is it to get somebody saved who can't live a life that's victorious in Christ? There's more steps. There's another way to do it. There's another step that has to take place. And you say, well, what was that step? That step is truth or transformation. The first step is true. So how do you get that? Well, look at the Bible. And it says in verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent, be baptized, every one of you, for the be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is to you, to your children, and to all who are far off, as many as, many as the Lord our God will call. Look at verse 40. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. It was a call. 
He said, Then those who gladly received the word were baptized, and about that day 3,000 souls were, came with them, came to Christ, added to them. And verse 42, here it is, truth with transformation. Truth with transformation is, and they continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrine. What did they do? Once they got saved, they got under the word of God. They got under truth. They got under truth with transformation. They got under the word of God. They continued in the apostles' doctrine. Listen, it's one thing to get saved, but now you've got to get this word in your life. That becomes the truth that transforms you. Your soul is saved, but now you've got to sanctify your flesh. Bring it under subjection. Are y'all with me or am I just talking in the, into, the, into the wind? And it said, and in the doctrine, and in fellowship and breaking of bread. The fellowship of breaking and bread. What is that? That is relationships with authenticity. Right? The fellowship of the breaking of bread. They fellowship together. They communion together. They ate together. They fellowship together. They had authentic Authentic uh, uh, relationships. Now, here's what's interesting in this. It wasn't just Jews. It was those from all over the world. There were those from Egypt, North Africa, from the islands of the Mediterranean, from Rome. There were those from all over the world. There was fellowship, relationship with authenticity. And then look what it says. It says, and breaking of bread and prayer. What is that? That is prayer with urgency. Or with persistence. And then we read down further. Verse 43. Then fear came upon the soul, and many wondered, signs and wonders done through the apostles, and all who believed were gathered and, all, and, and had all things in common. They had gathered together all things in common. Verse 44. Now when all the believers were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods, divided them among them all of anyone who had a need. What is that? That's generosity with joy. Are you, are you getting it this morning? Are you understanding? They took what they had and gave it to those who didn't have. Now that's not socialism. That's serving. That's seeing a need. Over the course of time, they saw need and they made sure that no need was not met. I love it that when I came here, Ron used to say all the time that uh, he used to say that whatever we need is in the house. Whatever we need is in the house. Whatever we need is in the house. Can I tell you, I believe that. I believe that whatever we need here at River Valley is in the house. I believe that everything we need to to help make us fruitful in God is in the house. I believe to be a church on mission, everything is in this house to help us get where we want to go. But it has to be done with the generosity and joy. Your generosity to be able to give your gift and the sacrifice and to give of yourself, and then there should be joy when you do it. Okay, Okay, here, here's how it goes. Here's how it's been going, okay? Now, I've not been on the other side, but I can tell you this is how it's been because I know how some people's attitudes are. Hey, 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 uh, uh, Joe, this is Pastor Shane. I need somebody to do this, and I need somebody to uh, take care of the, uh, uh, the nursery on Sunday. And Joe, I know... You're not used to doing that, and I know that you're a manly man and changing diapers and all that, and I know you've been peed on a couple times by, but could you work the nursery for me? And Joe would say, now this ain't true. This didn't happen. I'm just using Joe as an example. He's a good sport. And so Joe would say, oh yeah, pastor, I'd love to. I'll be there. Yeah, love to. I've always loved kids. Dang it. Can you believe what pastor asked me to do? He knows I'm not good with kids. He knows I can't do that. Why would he make me do that? Why would he ask me to do it? I cannot believe that he, he said God told I, God didn't tell him nothing. God didn't even ask me. I'll do it. Shut up, kid. Shut up. I don't want to be here anyway. Now, that, doesn't ha- that has not happened. I'm just telling you, what happens is, 
is that we need to learn to give ourselves to the Lord. And when we do say yes, that our yes is yes. That we're committed to our yes. And that we do it with the joy of the Lord. Because the truth is, if you do it in the will of God, you will find joy in doing it anyway. Okay. Generosity with joy. And you say, well, where do you get the joy from? Well, look at verse 46. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. And then verse 47, it says, praising God and having favor with all people and the Lord adding to the church daily those who were being saved. What was that? I'll tell you what that is. That is evangelism with urgency. Right here you have the early church. The early church, there was a devotion in them that produced out of them these values and where they said, we're going to be committed to the things of God. And our commitment is going to help transform the lives of others. Why? Because we're not waking up every day worried about everything that's involved in our life. But we say we have a mission. God's called us. We're going to do what God's called us to do. To live a life on mission. Now, I don't have a whole lot of time. I'm going to wrap it up with this. Adam, if you come. Now, what you see is, is this devotion, this devotion to the Word of God, this incredible devotion to the things of God. In that place where they were gathered. In that place where they were gathered. In that place where they were gathered. There was a place that they gathered. They gathered among one another. They fellowship with one another. They love one another. They care about one another. When one hurt, the rest of them hurt. You hear what I'm saying this morning? Gloria Gaither has written a new song. And... Uh, it goes like this, the chorus says like this, in this place is where we pray. In this place is where we cry. This place is where we, where we start till death do us part, where we say goodbye. Here we leave all our pain. Here we find forgiveness and grace, and here we walk down the aisle, dedicating our children here in this place. That is the chorus of a song that she wrote about the church. Let me tell you how she came to the place of this song. She was having lunch one day with a friend. Her father, her friend, her, his, her, his, her father, her friend's father was an Assembly of God pastor, retired pastor for many years. Well known. And she told Gloria, she said, tomorrow, which was Sunday, I'm taking my grandchildren to church for the first time. Mm, wow. She said, my son and my daughter, they were, or my son and his wife, my son was raised in church, was in church all of his life. Ever since they've had children, they've never returned back to the church. She said, I'm going to take my children to church, or my grandchildren to church, she said, you know what I'm going to do? When I walk in, I'm going to walk in to the vestibule, and I'm going to stop, and I'm going to tell them what a vestibule is, what this is here for, why it's here. She said, then I'm going to walk through the back doors of the sanctuary, and I'm going to show them the pews, and I'm going to say, these are the pews. These are here for this reason. She said, then I'm going to walk them up to the altar. And I'm going to tell them, I'm going to say, this is, what an, this is an altar. And this is what happens at this altar. People come to Jesus at this altar. People get married at this altar. People who have passed away have had their funeral services at this altar. At this altar is where those who come who have pain and hurt, and they come. And here at this altar is where they visit Jesus. She said, then I'm going to walk them up behind the pulpit. And I'm going to have them stand behind the pulpit. I'm going to say, this is a pulpit. 
This is what the preacher preaches off of. And what the preacher preaches is he opens what's called the Bible. And in this Bible is the answer to life's problems, every one that you have. And that anytime you have a need, you can just turn to the pages in this Bible. If you'll read and study it, this Bible will get in you. And she says, and the preacher preaches the word, and the word of God changes us. She said after a friend finished and she went home that night, she said she was laying in bed, and the Spirit of the Lord woke her up, and she said, I was just turned in my stomach. To think that there are those who are out there who don't know what a church is and the importance of this place. I want to tell you, this house, not the building, but what this house represents is something that is very important to your life into my life. It's in this house that people can be changed. It's in this house that drunkards can be set free and drug addicts set free and marriages put back together. It's in this house at this altar that life can be altered and changed in a moment. And it's in this house where life can become fresh and anew where something fresh can be done. And somebody, it's in this house you can marry the love of your life and make a commitment for a lifetime at this altar. It's in this house where God can speak to you and you can get up and go and win a world, a nation, a people, a workplace to Jesus. Those pews that you sit in is the place where God can speak to you and where the word can penetrate in your hearts. That's this place. And a church that lives on mission is a church that makes this place available for those kind of things to happen. But we have to have an identity. We have to know who we are and what our mission is. And I don't know what the future holds because only God does, but I'm telling you until you run me out of this place, we're going to live on mission. We're going to We're going to disciple people. We're going to be committed. I'm going to call you to commitment. This place ain't perfect. This church ain't perfect. You ain't going to find a perfect church. I'm not perfect. Matter of fact, I'll be honest with you. The last seven years, I've made some bad decisions. But I want to tell you, every decision I've made has not come from off the cliff I have faced, buried my face in altars like this to figure out what the will of God is for not only you, but this church. We have 168 weeks in a year. Or 168 weeks. Fifty-two weeks in a year. And every day, Satan, I believe that the devil has trained specific demons just to get people to trip up, to put people in situations where they wreck and ruin their lives. God is calling us to devotion. He's calling us to a place of gladness and simplicity. And I have so much more, but I want to close with this. Stand with me if you would this morning. I'd like for the fellows to come and distribute the communion emblems. Ron, if you would do that and have them stretch out across the front here. I want to read this to you. I need to correct something. 
that I feel like needs to be corrected. The Bible says in verse 46 that they were they had gone with gladness and simplicity of heart. The simplicity of heart means single focus. It means to be going and thinking the same thing. Gladness means extreme joy. Ogolosis is the word in the Greek. It means extreme joy. Matter of fact, just reading that word kind of makes you laugh. Imagine going around, Ogolosis, Ogolosis, Ogolosis. It means extreme joy. Let me tell you where this generation has flipped it. They think the church's responsibility is to meet your needs. That we're, the church is supposed to meet your needs. No, the, the church don't meet your needs. Christ meets your needs. <laughs> I know y'all don't like that. I said Christ meets your needs. The church is not here to meet your needs. The church is here to give you an opportunity to be equipped so that God can use you to meet the needs of somebody else. (laughs) Before we take communion, this is what Max Licato said in one of his books. Talking about having our lives as a God-centered life. He said this, and it rescues me from the life that does it. That's not about me. God's priority is his glory. He occupies the center stage. I only carry the props. He's the message. I am but a word. If it's all about you, then it's all up to you. I believe Satan has trained battalions of demons to whisper one thing into the ears of believers. And it's this. It's all about me. How many know that's a good word? To live on mission. We gather here at this church with it says they gathered together, they were common. In, their, in other words, there was unity in who they are. But when they left there, they were the church scattered, not the church gathered. When we leave here on Sunday morning, we're the church scattered. Those that are mechanics go to be mechanics. Those that are engineers go to be engineers. Those that are lawyers go be lawyers. Those that are insurance men become insurance men. But you're still a child of God. Insurance is just the platform that God has given you to reach the world. Engineering is just the platform that God has given you to reach the world. Teaching is the platform that God has given you to reach the world. And so, while we're here, we're the church gathered. But while we're out there, we're the church scattered. So my prayer is this morning, as you come and get these communion emblems, My prayer for you this morning is that you take these communion emblems and just like it was on that first Pentecost Sunday, that God will help you become one with the vision and with the direction, with the mission of this body. Say, Pastor, I'm in. By taking communion this morning, you're saying, I'm in. I'm with you. I'm going to be a part of it. We're going to raise up disciples. We're going to We're going to reach all. We're going to teach the disciple. We're going to send the called. We're going to build committed people. We're going to build competent people. We're going to build people who are productive. If you would, just quietly slip out of your seat. Come and grab one of the communion emblems and return to your seat. We're going to pray. We're going to pray this prayer of commitment and dedication to the Lord.
for just going to be a minute. Hang with us. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 22 says, Since you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the, through the Spirit, through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. I think Peter got it right. Since you have purified your souls and obeying the truth. What's Peter saying? He's saying, since you've obeyed the truth, since you've the word actually means since you've made commitment. You've purified your soul by making a commitment to love the body and to love the church. You've purified your soul. He said through the Spirit, sincere love of the brother. In other words, he's been sanctified. He's been purified through sanctification. We have positional sanctification, which is in Christ. We are made righteous through the blood of Jesus. Nothing you could do about that. He made, when you accepted Jesus, you have positional sanctification, which means even though you're not what you should be, you're still under the blood of Jesus. Thank God for grace. How many thank God for grace? Amen. And then there's, then there's partial sanctification or progressive sanctification, which means this. It means that in your Christian life, though you're not where you need to be yet, the Holy Spirit is going to move on your heart and ask you to commit to obedience. And when you commit to that obedience, all of a sudden the word is being revealed in your life about your state and where you are. And then there becomes cleansing and washing, which makes us renewed and refreshed. Jesus. Father, this is your body. This bread represents your sacrifice. Your body was sinless and you died and rose again. And because of that, your sinless nature, we are positionally righteous. But Lord, this morning, we all know we need work. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that convicts us about where we are in our walk with God. So we realign ourselves this morning. We speak to this flesh, we speak to this body to line up with the word of God and to line up. Your body was broken so we can have healing this morning. So we can be righteous and so, Lord, we break the bread and partake it this morning. Lord, we know the blood covers a multitude of sins. We thank you for the blood this morning. It covers our soul, and covers our lives, and we are made righteous through Christ, through the blood of Jesus. So, Lord, we pray that as we dedicate ourselves this morning to living on mission, dedicate ourselves to be committed believers, dedicate ourselves to having identity in Christ, to knowing what you've called us to do, what you've asked us to be, we take this cup this morning. In the name of Jesus, partake of the cup.
I just begin to worship him for just a moment this morning. Lord, we thank you. We bless your name, Lord. Now I'm going to pray, but I want every eye on me for just one minute. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Christ, you've never accepted Jesus as your personal Savior, I want to give you an opportunity this morning to know him. The greatest decision you'll ever make will be to come to Jesus. Maybe you're here. Maybe you've made a profession somewhere and it just, you've kind of was away from God. But you want to make a fresh commitment to the Lord this morning. I'm not going to beg you. I'm not going to play games. But if you want to make a fresh commitment to the Lord, I want you to come down to this altar this morning and let us pray for you. Let us lead you into new life. Let us lead you into a life where there's freedom in Christ. Is there anybody this morning that would accept this wonderful free gift that changes our lives? Just step out of where you are. Trust Jesus. Oh, the devil will take you back anytime. Jesus. Anyone this morning? Father, we thank you for your goodness and mercy. Father, we pray that, God, as we leave today, we'll feel like we have our mission. Thank you, Lord. Encourage us each day that, God, it's hard living in a world that is without Christ, being a believer, stepping into a world that's becoming more and more hostile toward the righteousness of God. Thank you for your love and mercy this morning. Thank you for what you're doing in the midst of our body. Thank you for joining us for River Valley Community Church's podcast. If you feel led to give, you can click on the donation link in the description or visit our website at rivervalleymadison.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe or share with your friends. Thanks again for listening. God bless you.